0: Download the new Bumble now.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian. Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, the Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Madam Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Verdigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spaley. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Back in 1697, King William III of England granted license to a second, parallel East India Company. Officially, it was called the English Company Trading to the East Indies, but Robert C. Ritchie just calls it the New Company Company as opposed to the old company. The purpose of this whole plot was to undermine the old East India Company. And it wasn't like it was some sort of nefarious, clandestine plot. Everybody knew what they were doing. King William was trying to defang a company that was filled with his political opponents. The board of this new company was predictably filled with pro-William Whigs. And at the time, it looked like this plot just might work. The entire board of the new company were installed in important positions already. You know, they were MPs and mayors and dukes. They were important people. And while the Whigs were politically ascendant, the new company made some great strides into the old East India Company's territory. India itself was an old company stronghold, But the new company, because they had William's blessing, played very nicely with the Dutch in the region. So you can imagine the kind of siege mentality that might arise in the old company after the king pulled a move like this. They were already dealing with the fallout from Henry Everie's raid on the Ganji Sawai. It was not impossible to imagine a scenario in which... Aurangzeb, the Grand Mughal, kicked them out of India. And along comes this company designed specifically to supplant them. So when this adventure galley comes along, with the captain, William Kidd, bearing a commission from the king, who was, remember, actively trying to destroy your company, you can understand where the old company might be a bit suspicious why they might think that William Kidd was actively sent to undermine them. And, you know, maybe he kind of was. He was sent, after all, to do their job. He was hunting pirates in the East India Company's jurisdiction, and if he succeeded, that would make the East India Company look bad. So the old company sabotaged Captain Kidd at every turn. And as it turns out, for their futures that was the right decision. This is episode 293, A Corporation of Pirates. All of this piracy and privateering, pirate hunting, all of this violence, it was political in nature. And I'm reminded of nothing so much as the 1968 presidential campaign, when Richard Nixon, a candidate at that point conspired with the South Vietnamese government to sabotage the peace talks in Paris. He was working against the national interest and, you know, world peace and human decency to further his own political ends. Anything that makes your opponents look good has to be stopped. Even if it's a net good, letting pirates roam the Indian Ocean is better for the Tories, than letting the Whigs end the pirate menace. But everything in 1669 and 1700, everything the company did was with an eye on winning back power the next time an election for the Parliament was held. And everything they did worked amazingly well. In the election of 1700, not one member of the board of the new East India Company, retained their seat. Virtually all the allies of the Whig nobility and most of the Admiralty members who sat in the Parliament lost their seats. The Tories swept through the Parliament like wildfire. Now, imagine this in your government. It would be like here in the U.S. if the Democrats were accused of working with terrorists. As a pure hypothetical, say that they funded an anti-terror paramilitary group in Afghanistan that wound up attacking America. Which, of course, you know, isn't that hypothetical. It actually happened to America, only it wasn't the Democrats that did it. I'm using the Democrats here, though, because the Whigs were a, a more liberal party. And while when that actually did happen, it really wasn't a political disaster for the people who did it, it was in 1700. All of this accusation of working with pirates, of funding pirates to attack the East India Company, was a disaster for the Whigs. So, in our hypothetical, say that the Republicans stormed Congress in the wake of the controversy. If you were a mid-level bureaucrat somewhere, wouldn't you be most likely to bend to the whims of the new regime, the people in power? The admiralty was mostly a Whig institution, and they had jurisdiction over William Kidd. But then, after the election, the Whigs were brushed out of power. They still controlled the admiralty, but basically nothing else. If you were, say, the warden of Newgate Prison, wouldn't you maybe decide it was a good idea to listen to the new boss? Now, this next bit is a little controversial. The Tories decided to throw their weight around a bit after gaining power. They sent a team to Newgate to speak with William Kidd. Now, that was against the rules. And no one seems to agree on exactly what happened next. When did this team go to see Captain Kidd? And did they actually get in to see him? And if they pulled that off, what did they talk about? No one denies that the Tories tried to get in to see Captain Kidd, but most historians agree that they probably made it inside. However, William Kidd was not compliant. We can assume that the Tories asked him to name names. You know, what powerful Whigs told you to go be a pirate? Who was it that ordered you to attack the East India Company? That was their angle on all of this. That Captain Kidd was more or less a stooge. Someone who had been ordered to seize company shipping. Of course, he hadn't actually seized any company shipping. The Quida merchant was of interest to the company, but it was a privately owned vessel. And that's what Captain Kidd told them. He told them the story that we've been telling, that he did in fact have a commission to hunt pirates, and that's what he did. He wasn't very successful at it, but that was mostly the fault of his men. He never attacked the company, and he tried repeatedly to work with them against the pirates. Now the question is, do you say you were a Tory in that situation? Do you believe him? He could have been lying and he certainly skirted the truth in his story from time to time, but the evidence seems to suggest that, by and large, he was telling the truth. It is, of course, possible that someone from the whig junto slipped him secret orders to attack company interests and make it look like he hadn't. It's always a good idea to hurt your political opponents, however possible, right? But if kid was slipped orders along those lines then he did a terrible job or who knows maybe he did an excellent job maybe he sabotaged some company shipping so well that there's zero evidence of it anywhere to speak of that's kind of a long shot though now william kid had an opportunity here if he had been willing to play ball to name names he might have been able to cut a deal Maybe the Tories would have agreed to keep him from the gallows. Maybe set him up as a patsy in this whole story, doing the bidding of the Whigs, but not of his own volition. If it all worked out, maybe they could send him back to New York, a free man. I don't know that anything like that was ever offered. Conversely, I don't know if William Kidd suggested anything like that, or if he even would have. Whether or not that was on the table, the other side didn't bite. We know that Captain Kidd did not name any names. Sympathetic biographers to Captain Kidd will portray him as staunchly refusing to turn his coat, staying loyal to his one-time benefactors, and I think that's a bit generous to Captain Kidd. But whatever his motivations, he didn't talk. And this was a huge disappointment for the Tories. They really could have used that testimony. They had big plans for the Whigs. They were going to drag them over the coals in the Parliament. You know, where are all those papers, Lord so-and-so? Why can't anyone see them? Why can't anyone get to see William Kidd? What about Lord Bellamont? Where's he been hiding this whole time? They were going to savage the Whigs in the Parliament. But then, before they could get to any of that, world events pulled the rug right out from under them. We're holding off on talking about these big global events until we look at the upcoming war properly, but they do inform what's happening right here in early 1701. King Charles II of Spain died in November 1700 without an heir. There were very few good choices in his house of Habsburg to replace him. And then in January, Princess Anne, the heir to the throne of England, suffered a miscarriage. Again, we're going to talk a lot more about all of this in the future, but that means that after the princess, there was only one child left to her in the line of succession. And that child, the Duke of Gloucester, was in poor health. It's Very likely that there were about to be two simultaneous succession crises, bad ones, that engulfed Europe at exactly the same moment, right? And King Louis XIV knew this, and he was massing his armies. For the Whigs, who were seen as the War Party, this was a blessing in almost every possible way. If King Louis started a war, all of these silly little concerns about William Kidd, well, they would just seem so superficial, right? Whenever the Tories brought up the trial of William Kidd, the Whigs could just turn around and say, Hey, what are you doing? There's a war coming. We need to prepare. The nation needs to come together, and you're trying to divide us. The Whigs could argue, honestly, that they had much bigger concerns to deal with. In the interim, the Admiralty, by which I mean the Whigs, granted a few concessions to William Kidd. They granted him the right to attend church services on Sunday, under close guard, but they also gave him his walks. He had a bit more freedom. Then they gave Mrs. Hawkins and her husband the right to see him, to go into the prison and visit with him. Only the once, but they did. It took him a bit of money and some food and blankets. But I think more important than anything, this was his first friendly companionship in over a year. Mrs. Hawkins was kind enough to write a letter to her cousin Sarah back in New York. Probably, actually, it was her husband, Matthew, that did the writing, but they were Mrs. Hawkins' words. There wasn't really much news to share. William was alive, doing mostly well, and they were about to start the trial. Still, though, it must have been wonderful to have some tidings of her husband from a friendly face. The same ship that carried that letter to Sarah Bradley Kidd also carried the governor of New York and Massachusetts, Lord Bellomont. He was returning home. He arrived in Manhattan on the 5th of March, 1701. And there are two things worth noting here. First... Remember that Lord Bellamont was supposed to be in possession of those passports that proved William Kidd was innocent of piracy, that they were French ships. But if those passports did in fact exist, they had disappeared. I suspect, and I'm not alone in this, that Lord Bellamont did the right thing. He turned those passports over to the requisite authorities, but, of course, those requisite authorities had a very vested interest in seeing Captain Kidd hang for piracy. If Bellamont did hand those passports over, they disappeared, probably in Whig fireplaces. The second thing to note here is that Lord Bellamont, who could have testified to the validity, the existence of those passports, well, he died shortly after returning to America. Now, don't get me wrong, I'd love to sell you some conspiracy theory about poison to keep him from talking, but I can't, you know, he was in terrible health. He was overweight, he was suffering from gout, and apparently his kidneys just gave out. But the real slap in the face here is that Lord Bellamont was buried at Trinity Church, a church that both he and Sarah Bradley had helped to build. They were both benefactors of Trinity Church, and that's where Sarah Bradley attended service every Sunday. It's where she married William Kidd, and not to give away the game here, but it's where the widow Kidd will be married sometime down the line. I can't imagine that any of that would be pleasant next to the final resting place of a man who had caused her so much suffering. Back in England, about a week after Lord Bellomont died, William Kidd was finally brought out of his cell. He was escorted out of Newgate Prison for the first time in a long time. It was March twenty seventh, 1701. Kidd was to be taken to the House of Commons. His guardians were John Cheek, the East India Company man, and Warden Fells from Newgate, with, of course, a cadre of guards. And it appears that they actually walked the distance from Newgate to Westminster Palace. There are no records of any kind of carriage, and even though nobody seems to have known ahead of time that Captain Kidd was being moved, almost as soon as they started on their path, people took notice and crowds began to gather. They weren't hateful or violent towards William Kidd. They didn't hurl cabbages at him. They just wanted a look to see who this arch-villain was. But of course, he wasn't much to look at. William Kidd was haggard. He had a long, scraggly beard. He was unwashed. He was squinting in the sunlight, cringing at the noise. And he was sick. Captain Kidd was not well here. And I think that that's the image that the authorities wanted to project when the people of London saw this King of Pirates. Take a good long look, everybody, that's what a pirate really is. But of course it was absolutely not the sort of figure that they wanted to allow into their own presence. As soon as Kid was admitted to Westminster, probably through a side door, he was greeted by a barber surgeon and a tailor. Kid was examined, deemed fit enough to stand before the Parliament, and then they cleaned him up. They gave him a bath, they shaved him, gave him a haircut, and even found him a black suit to wear. Then they gave him a white wig. Now, we really don't know what Captain Kidd looked like most of the time. We've got descriptions of him as having a full beard and long hair, usually pulled back, but there are no visual depictions of him as such. Madame Anita was kind enough to send me a picture of a portrait she did of Captain Kidd, which is lovely, and it has him as he was described, but the only proper visual depiction we have of Captain Kidd comes from here, at Westminster, after he was cleaned up to see the Parliament. What was to come was not a trial. Instead, it was more of a pre-trial hearing, a formalized questioning of Captain Kidd prior to any actual trial proceedings. Kidd was going to be questioned by the commons, which you know, means the Tories in public. But he was going to be accompanied by two men, men named Kogi Baba, who was the Armenian merchant that owned the Quida merchant and had a claim to press on the prize, as well as another man named Henry Bolton. Henry Bolton, I'd be surprised if you remember, was the captain of the St. Antonio. That's the sloop that brought William Kidd to America, to Boston. Henry Bolton was kind of a... Well, he inhabited that milieu of Caribbean sailors that walked the line between merchant, smuggler, and pirate. Basically, the connective tissue that made the Caribbean work, that made the golden age of piracy possible. More relevant to our story, he might be the only man in the world that actually knew where the Queda merchant was to be found. But here's the thing. No one could find the guy. Just a few days earlier, Henry Bolton had been released on bail out of Marshall C. Prison And then he just disappeared. This gives us the first big drama of Captain Kidd's trial proceedings, even though this isn't officially the trial. It has nothing to do with Captain Kidd, though. Instead, the Tories spent a good couple of hours chewing out the guy who granted that bail. I mean, obviously he was fired, but it was about more than that. They used this minor setback to harangue all the Whigs that were in charge of William Kidd. This was how they handled the most important case in fifty years. The MPs declaimed that this was merely one example of what the Tories were calling the avarice of the great. The great, in this case, of course, being the Whig. But it was part of a much larger pattern of incompetence, a pattern so large that it might just suggest criminal negligence, perhaps even criminal conspiracy. And it was here that the Tories coined a new name for these men, for the Whigs that were involved with Captain Kidd. They called the Whigs a Corporation of Pirates which is some pretty fiery rhetoric. And it was a day of powerful declamation. The Tory leadership orated at length. I mean, they went on and on and made all kinds of accusations against the Whigs. But when they finally got around to questioning William Kidd, the ostensibly the purpose of this whole meeting, there were no surprise revelations. Nothing new, nothing interesting, no new mud to sling. Kidd said that, yes, he had met with Lord Bellamont and had been to Lord Summer's home, but never met the man, never stood in his presence. The one big thing for us, a piece of information that we have yet to hear, Captain Kidd said that he never wanted a pirate-hunting commission. All he ever wanted was a privateering commission against the French so he could hunt them during the Nine Years' War off the coast of his home in New York. Which, I believe, all he wanted was to sail out, capture a couple of French prizes, and come back slightly richer than he was before. That's fine, but that's not what he got. Instead, according to him, they pushed him into this line of going to the East Indies, hunting pirates, getting involved with the East India Company, and, lest we forget... The same people who pushed him down that road are the people who took all of his sailors. All of the good sailors that he recruited in London, they commandeered those men. They took them for the Navy, and kid was left with the dregs. I mean, really, it's starting to look pretty damning for the Whigs here. They really, really screwed this up and really screwed him over. But in the end, despite all of their powerful rhetoric, it was a disappointing day for the Tories. For William Kidd, though, it was especially demoralizing. When all was said and done, William Kidd was told that he would indeed stand trial for piracy. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon Everyone who has recommended this show, shared it online or in real life, and everybody who has given us a rating or review, you all help make this show possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain, by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at Podcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.